From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. We are finishing up our In Her Boots podcast series with Hallie Webking of Meadowlark Organics, talking about the bright future of organic local grains and the role women can play. From planting regional specific grains to starting a mill, there are lots of business opportunities out there. Hallie Webking and her husband John run Meadowlark Organics, working with Paul Bickford on his 800-acre farm, shifting the focus from organic feed crops to a diversity of food-grade small grains, buckwheat, edible dry beans, and open-pollinated corn. Hallie is mom to two young kids, Henry and Lida, and a grass-fed beef herd, just to make sure she keeps busy. We are wrapping things up with Hallie Webking of Meadowlark Organics. Thank you so much for sharing. I have learned so much. I always learn much (laughs) on these podcasts, but this is fascinating because I feel like it's the maybe not final, but at least one of the remaining frontiers of our local food movement that is so important. We all, for the most part, eat bread, grains, and various things, Mm -hmm. but uh, not a lot of, uh, well, people like yourself. So you're really a pioneer in growing these, in many cases, heritage crops, but for new markets, right? In new ways and definitely a changing climate and all of that. And so it sounds like there's opportunity, particularly for women, right? To be considering on the farming side and I I, granted I'm assuming this probably varies based on where you live regionally but for a woman farmer curious about grains what would you Mm -hmm. suggest I mean just to even try something because it especially if somebody's already doing say vegetables or meat it's distinctly different yeah it is and there are a couple of examples that um, come to mind of women who have diversified in this way one of them is andy hazard who's in northern illinois oh, yeah. so yeah hazard free farms um she was you know vegetables and then has started growing grains she focuses a lot on like heirloom corns um but also some heirloom varieties of wheat and so she's a good example of doing it at a smaller scale uh because she pretty much runs that operation herself. Yeah, she does work with, like, you know, her brother will custom combine for her or whatever, which is not, you know, lots of people get people to custom combine for them. It's not, like, unusual thing. But um, there's another farmer in California. Um, her name is Mai, and she grows heritage wheats um, that are milled by Griston Toll, which is in L.A., so you know, that, that region of California. Um, so, you know, there are examples of women who are doing it at different scales. You don't have to have 700 acres of tillable land to get started, obviously. Um, so with somebody like Andy who was doing vegetables, yeah, just to 
try it out or what would sort of acreage would you need for something like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think like, I don't know, at least an acre. Part of it is there are so many ways to get involved. So one of the ways that Andy has really, one of the things that she's done is she's grown out a variety of wheat called Marquis, which, you know, they harvested with scissors the first year. But it's <laughs> but it's about growing seed stock. So it's about increasing diversity um, in the varieties that we have available to us. You know, it's not just what you can buy out of a seed catalog. It's getting germplasm from the USDA in a packet of, you know, 25 seeds and growing that out. And there are people who are very passionate about these things. And it's also really important, especially with climate, you know, being less predictable. Um, we need to have uh, varieties that are resilient. And a lot of those heritage varieties are more resilient. So... You know, that's one way that I think a lot of women have gotten involved in, like, the seed saving and growing aspect. Um, you don't have to be full production to be important in this movement, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a couple of great female millers. Like I said, the woman at Griston Toll. And then there's also Jill Cummings at the mill at Janie's Farm, which is in central Illinois. Um, and she's kind of... I think at the frontier of women in milling too, which is cool. Because the milling side is an important, not well, important, vital piece in all yeah, of this, right? Definitely. So you harvest your grains, you dry them, you do some. There's a process that you do, and sure. then they do the final milling into what a consumer or baker would use. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a critical role. Um, do you see a need for more mills? Yeah. It sounds like it's very similar at least in theory, to meat processing, right? Yeah. And the need for more, especially places that could take smaller batches. Yeah, and, identity and preserved. And do all that. Yeah. But, but milling is a whole other arena, right? I mean, as far as skill set, it's manufacturing, yeah. it's mechanical. Yeah. It's uh, distinctly different than mm -hmm. farming, but mm -hmm. there's other roles people can play. Definitely. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, so, but a mill to start that up is obviously needs capital yeah, and infrastructure capital and things. Yeah. So it's a probably a dance in managing those types of risks, right? Of yeah. having enough of a consumer demand, having enough of a farmer production demand, and the ability to run this, these large pieces of equipment. Right. Wow. Yeah. But that's good. So when did, when did I mean, even just from your lens, did all of this take off? Because it's, it seems like it's really blooming now and you were talking about the sure. Artisan Grain Collaborative and there's different initiatives to help educate and uh -huh. help market and help get more of these local grains out there. Right. But it's still fairly new, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the the movement in New York really got going like 2013, 14, 15. Oh, wow. Yeah, so very new but they've already like outgrown their production capabilities in some ways, you know. Um, so the mills that exist are at maximum throughput. In the Midwest, you know, we have obviously Lonesome Stone, which is close to us. There's a mill in like the Twin Cities area, and then obviously Harold's Mill and or the Mill at Janie's Farm in Central Illinois. But not um, many. I mean, it's no. kind of like a handful, is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, and you know, part of it is like how. Uh, you have to consider how big the market actually is. Um, but you also have to be, I don't know, it's a really tough thing because it doesn't exactly, doesn't necessarily sell itself, right? So there is a ton of education that has to go into a consumer and otherwise. Um, 
I love a bread sells. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's a different story. Yeah. But you, but then you also have to think like, so a loaf of bread sells, but it might only sell to a certain consumer base. Sure. Right? So only people who are willing to spend $8 on an artisan loaf of bread. Um, so how do you make these crops and these um, products more accessible to everybody? You know, so yeah. part of that is like getting into institutions, um, into schools, into hospitals and universities. Um, That's interesting with schools, because I would think with both of us being moms and with you having young kids, especially mm-hmm. kids have distinct, they, they can develop distinct palates at an early age when it comes to bread. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If we start giving our kids good quality bread at a young age. Yeah. Uh, They'll for, prefer it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, but it is, it can be, I would think, a harder sell if a kid has, you know, been living in the Wonder Bread world to right. all of a sudden have something distinctly different. Yeah. Well, you can make a nice, you know, enriched dough that can, won't, you know, pass as Wonder Bread, but is very easy on the palate, yeah. oh, too. Oh, that's really you know? interesting. Sure. So it's not, I know it, it, it maybe more of a stereotype with artisan breads are these big crunchy heavy right. loaves that you yeah, know, require muscle to cut. And, and I right. love those breads, but, <laughs> but that's not the point you're making. It's, no. There's all kinds of breads you can make, all kinds of textures and yeah. definitely kid-friendly. Yeah. The point is with better, higher quality, higher nutrient local flours. Yeah. Yeah, it can't be, we can't be focused on one idea or raising up one, you know, loaf of bread or one style. It has to be something that everybody, that Many people can enjoy, you know, it's not just about the people who prefer that Western European style or Eastern even. I mean, you know, you like your rye breads. A lot of people have never tasted a Latvian rye bread. No, no. And rye is a distinct taste. Yeah. And even then it's like, I don't like caraway seeds in my (laughs) rye, but people would call me on that. But no, it's great to see people experiment. I love, that's what I love about travel and breads is you can find so many interesting things and, um try to make them or try not to make them and buy them. It's, it's all good. Um, you'd mentioned uh, kind of have a, covering an eclectic array of topics on this last episode, but you mentioned earlier about grains for brewing and mm-hmm. distilling. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't even think about that because I always think, well, maybe because I love to bake, but immediately to baking. Right. But that's a huge market, market. too, right? Mm-hmm. As far as the organic grains, mm-hmm. the local grains, mm-hmm. and those would be used in both Beer and alcohol, alcohol spirits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are the most common grains used for that? Um, or- corn is a big one, um, but also wheat and barley. Obviously, if you're going to be making beer, but that has to be malted, so it has to go through a separate process. Um, different than the mill, and different yeah. than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an aspect of milling and distilling and brewing where um, you use a hammer mill, basically, but it's not. What's that like? Literally a hammer? <laughs> no, it's just it's like a coarser grind oh, okay. in a lot of ways. But there are, I don't know, the world of distilling is also kind of changing too. So there's more advanced mills that use a finer flour to extract whatever starch and sugar out they need. But yeah, the distilling and brewing markets are definitely big ones and ones that haven't always been focused on using local grains. Um, There are just really a few that we know of um, that either use 100% or really that's part of their business, but it certainly could be. And uh, one, you know, not to always talk about New York as like (laughs) the example, but they did pass a law when you start talking about policy and the way policy can affect change. Um, They did pass 
a law that enabled distilleries to have a more streamlined and cheaper liquor license if they use 25% local grain. Really? Yeah, and they've also upped that requirement, I think, as far as percentage, um, which has really given farmers markets for those grains because even if they're uh, at a quality that couldn't necessarily be turned into flour, um, distilling has a, like... Uh, more forgiving threshold, basically, for some of those numbers um, that, you know, would allow farmers to sell into those markets. Oh, sure. That's interesting, though. I So it, having a market of distillers and brewers could help manage your grain portfolio. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's good. I mean, it's nice to have many different avenues to sell. Uh-huh. You know, you need to be able to sell by totes by semis in some case and also by two pound bags yeah but that's really interesting that example on the policy side coming out of new york of good policy that can help support farmers ultimately right but also all aspects of the production cycle are there things like that you see in the grain i mean i don't know if you had the magic wand on policies or something you would change that would help Small-scale grain farmers like yourself? Yeah, I mean, that very law. Like, if in Wisconsin that has such a big um, beer and, like, you know, drinking culture in general, and there's so many local breweries and distilleries popping up, um, if we had a law like that, I mean, I think about, like, it's a very complicated issue, but the, like, dairy industry, if farmers who are probably already growing some small grains, some soft winter wheats, um, if they had that market, uh, they would be able to diversify and hopefully achieve some more, you know, economic um, sustainability, viability. So I think that would be a big one for Wisconsin to kind of take on. Oh, sure. That makes total sense. We don't, there's all these dots that obviously somebody, somebody having their grilled cheese for lunch may not quite, <laughs> quite see, but, right. uh, but that's huge. That's yeah. huge. Do you see, so when you were talking about, about your mix of grains that you you currently grow, there's a mix of like, heri- you were calling it heritage grains. Mm-hmm. So are these ones that you just, we used to grow that we don't? Yeah. Is it a production thing or a climate thing or both? So yeah, that basically just means that they were varieties that existed before 1950, mm. before like the green revolution in modern breeding. Um so, you know, the modern varieties really coincided with the industrialization of, like, flour production and bread production. Okay. So they bred varieties of wheat that would um, develop, like, stronger gluten quicker. So you have your Wonder Bread and you don't have to do a slow rise like you traditionally do with these other grains. Um, and so it's not across the board, but generally heritage varieties have... Um, have basically shorter gluten strands, um, so they're more easily digestible. They might take a longer uh, rising process or a longer fermentation if you're doing sourdough. Um, so, you know, that's just kind of the distinction that's made. And that's interesting because that's where you, you, you hear now too, right, that people who may have thought they had issues with gluten, mm-hmm. well, it's only modern gluten right. in that sense and highly and, processed yeah, and, yeah yeah and going back to these more traditional breads is it is it hard to find seed for these 
bridal sometimes. sometimes. Um, yeah, sometimes. And that's why, you know, like Andy Hazard and growing out that marquee is a really valuable thing. There's also uh, Charlie Tennyson in like the Racine area. He has a farm called Anarchy Acres and he's big into growing his seed growing out different these different varieties of wheat seed, which is really cool and valuable to our community. Yeah, that it can be really difficult to find, especially enough seed to plant a large enough plot. But, sure. you know, it's all part of the process is trying to go away from the, like, monoculture, one strain, you know. That's not very, um, I don't know, doesn't give you a lot of insurance. So... Sure. And do you rotate your grains around then as far as yeah. managing the soil and fertility? and mm -hmm. Yeah. We grow, you know, we grow some fall planted grains um, and some spring planted grains and they all have their own unique spot in our rotation. And these don't overwinter. Do some of them do, do, yeah. Oh. The fall planted ones do. Like rye and winter wheat and so spelt. You plant in the fall and then harvest in the spring. Harvest in the summer, yeah. Summer, well, Okay. Interesting. Excellent. Well, we, that was quite the eclectic last episode <laughs> here, but all the best to you. This is, this is an area that I think so much potential and everybody can play a role in it, whether yeah. you eat, you bake, or you grow, or right. you farm, or you mill. But, or you brew, uh, or you distill. Yeah, there are so many players. pioneer at the cusp of something super big. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots Project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, In Her Boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.